Please open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. And while you turn there, I'll invite you to pull out the uh, notes in the bulletin. And I'll remind you that this is our fifth and final message in a series that we've done, pausing our study of the book of Ephesians, um, entitled, We Are His Creatures. Uh, and in particular, dealing with answering from a biblical perspective um, some critical issues in the culture coming to the church. And so in our opening message, we looked at uh, two realities. We, the first, we are embodied souls. We are that union of flesh and spirit. And, and that's a critical truth, pushing back against our culture's insistence that minds and personhood is what makes us who we are. And the, the physical in our bodies is, is unimportant. It can be thrown away. It can be twisted and shaped as we see fit. The second critical truth is that by virtue of being his creatures, we're under his authority and we're under obligation. And so in a world that prizes personal autonomy and freedom, that says, if I don't consent to an obligation, you cannot impose it upon me, we as the church of the Lord Jesus Christ need to say, no, no, no. We, we recognize numerous obligations that are placed upon us, whether we want them or not, as his creatures. And from that vantage point, we, we spend a week looking at answering the evil of abortion, answering the issue of homosexuality. Last week, answering issues of, of transgenderism, how to think through that as, as people of God. What, what wisdom does God's word have? This week, we're bringing it to a close, hopefully having settled some of those issues, clarified some of those issues. But now, what do we do with that? Um, all of these messages have come primarily from the perspective of, as God's people, what should we think? Biblically, what should we make of this? We've intentionally avoided issues of, okay, what does this mean for our world and for our culture? Well, this morning we'll deal with some of that. The title of this morning's message is, Living as Strangers in a Strange Land. And that phrase, a stranger in a strange land, comes from the King James translation of Exodus 2.22. Moses, having fled Egypt, um, gives birth to a son, he names him Gershom, for he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. And the King James translated that a stranger in a strange land. And for some of us growing up in a country that was Judeo-Christian and ethic and on some sort of veneer level, it may be surprising and dismaying to see that veneer stripping off. And the views expressed in the last few weeks in our series are radically out of step with a large portion of our culture, radically out of step with the laws of our land, how do we then live as strangers in a strange land? How do we then interact with our unbelieving neighbors, or the unbelieving world? What do we do with these truths? That's what we're trying to answer this morning. So I would uh, invite you to read with me um, 1 Corinthians chapter 5. I'd like to start by reading verses 9 through 13. Uh, there's really two main points this morning. And they're going to come from two chunks of Scripture. We're going to be in 1 Corinthians 5 and 6 for a little while, and then we'll be in 1 Peter 3 and 4 for a little while, God willing. So let's begin by reading 1 Corinthians 5, 9 through 13. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world. Or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. 
But now I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he's guilty of sexual morality or greed or is an idolater, reveler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. Let's have a word of prayer. Lord God, I pray as we look at your word, you would give us wisdom and insight, know how to act, how to live in these last days, um, that we would um, neither be afraid nor self-righteous, that you would give us the wisdom to season our words with salt. Now I pray that you'd give us those ears to hear. I pray for strength and clarity of thought for myself. I pray that you would be glorified in our midst. In Jesus' name, amen. I'll give you the the two main blanks for point one and point two to say where we're going. If you want to summarize the points this morning, there's two points. One, do not judge the world. Point number two, do not fear the world. Do not judge the world and do not fear the world. That's where we're going this morning. Two points of application. And the first point comes directly out of our passage we've looked at this morning. You see that um, right here in Verse 12, for what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom we are to judge? So in this passage, we're given instructions about how we exercise judgment, discernment to deal with issues of sin, and there's a radically different set of instructions for dealing within the church and without the church, what Paul refers to as outsiders. Now, sadly, in, in, in many instances in the, in the Western church, Many churches have got this entirely backwards. Certainly, the caricature of the Western church is a bunch of hypocrites who don't deal with their own sin but like throwing stones at others. That's exactly the inverse of what we're told to do here. And so as we've looked at and and gotten clarity on important issues, issues of abortion, homosexuality, transgenderism, I want us to, to understand that God is not calling us to judge the world or at least not yet, we will look a little further in chapter 6. When one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels How much more than matters pertaining to this life? So the issue is timing. And right now, our mission is not to judge the world. That comes later. Right now, we are to judge ourselves, not the world. So I want to move through this and, and spell out the implications. Because the challenge for us is going to always be The truth in love, not compromising on truth, but not being self-righteous, arrogant Pharisees. So do not judge the world. Point A, notice we still associate with sinners in the world. We still associate with sinners in the world. Paul had written to them, and the Corinthian church had gotten it backwards. They were proud and celebrating gross sin in their midst, And yet they were apparently separating themselves from the sinners outside of the church. Look at at verse 1 of chapter 5. It's actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, 
and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans, for a man has his father's wife, and you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? They were celebrating their inclusiveness, their tolerance. They were non-judgmental. And yet, he has to correct them on the other end. So on the one end, they're, they're dealing with gross sin. They're not dealing with actually gross sin in their body. They're tolerating it. But he says in verse 11, I'm now writing to you not to associate. Oh, sorry. Verse 10. Not at all meaning the sexual immoral of this world or the greedy, the swindlers, or idolaters. Since then, you would need to go out of the world. So he has to correct them on the fact. I, I didn't mean not to stop associating. I didn't mean to stop associating with sinners in the world. So the first assumption is we are still having dealings with them. We're still interacting with them. We are still associating with the sinners of the world. And and Pharisaism is always going to oppose this. You remember from our study of Luke's gospel, what was the complaint of the Pharisees at Jesus? In Luke 15, 1 through 2, we read, Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him. And the Pharisees and the scribes are grumbling, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. And so Jesus, as he's dealing with, and he's calling them to repentance, he's not celebrating their sin, but Jesus is absolutely welcoming and reaching out to and evangelizing these people who the Pharisees rejected and had nothing to do with. And here, Paul has to correct the Corinthians, telling them, no, 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 I didn't mean stop associating with the sinners in the world, and then you have to go out of the world. I'm talking about what you're doing within the church. So we still associate with the sinners of the world, which means then, point one, do not become a respecter of sins. Do not become a respecter of sins. See, the logic's really simple. If you say to yourself, if you're going to try to say, I don't associate with sinners, well, then you're going to have to go live in a monastery. But then you'll have the problem that you're living with yourself. So what we tend to do then is make lists of sins, and we can tolerate some sins, and other sins we don't tolerate, and very conveniently, the ones we don't tolerate tend to be the ones we don't struggle with. That's habitually what can happen. And so, whether it's gambling, or drug addiction, or homosexuality, or whatever you want to make it, those become the mortal sins, and I just struggle with venial sins. And yet, look at chapter 6, verse 9, where Paul makes it clear Do you not know the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor greedy, nor drunkards, nor revelers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. Now, notice again, homosexuality clearly named as sin. And it's right alongside of other sins that you and I struggle with. I guarantee there's something on this list we wrestle with. So absolutely, it's sin. But it's not put in some class or tier above everything else. It's in this list of sins. And so we ought not to be respecters of sins. We ought not to have a hierarchy of sins that, well, we'll go out to dinner with somebody if they're just an adulterer but not if they're transgender. We'll, we'll play a game of golf with someone who's proud or covetous, but not somebody who's a drunkard, and we get our list of mortal and venial sins. When we're dealing with the world, we shouldn't be surprised that they're sinners. 
We should not be respecters of sins. You shouldn't have a list of sins that you don't associate with. Our Lord didn't. And it comes from self-righteousness and pride, because the next point is to not become proud. Where this attitude comes from, Paul rebukes the Corinthian church back in chapter 5. You are arrogant, verse 2. Ought you not rather to mourn? And he reminds them in chapter 6, verse 11, such were some of you. So Paul gives a list of sins that people characterized by, given to, people habituated in these sins. They don't go to heaven, they go to hell. And such were some of you. We, we came out of that same pool. So yes, your unbelieving neighbor struggles with sin. It doesn't even struggle. Your unbeliever neighbor is given to sin. And so were you and I before our conversion. There's no room for self-righteousness and pride, as if we can look down our nose at others. Yes, it's sin. Yes, it's wrong. But Paul makes this list here. And, and you're going to have to go through and pick which ones are the bad ones, and which ones are the okay ones, and which ones are the tolerable ones, and which ones are the intolerable ones. And, and you're going to have a good luck with that, because the Scripture's not really going to help you with that. Let me just go through the list here. Verse 9, sexually immoral. Idolaters, there's all false religion. All false religion falls under idolatry. Your nice Hindu friend, idolater, idolatry. Adulterers, men who practice homosexuality, thieves, greedy, drunkards, revilers, swindlers. We'll inherit the kingdom of God, and such were some of you. So we, we need to not be respecters of sins. Now, it's difficult because the issue of homosexuality, the issue of abortion, the issue of transgenderism gets brought up again and again and again in our culture. And so we need to answer it. We need to answer it when it's right and appropriate to answer it clearly and well. But we don't want to give the impression that these are the great and terrible sins. We struggle with small, safe, respectable sins. And those people out there, they struggle with the really nasty ones. In fact, if I would pick any sin that was primary and most offensive to God is pride. And certainly the Pharisees received Jesus' strongest denunciations and condemnations. Okay, moving on. Second point from this. So first, we still associate with the sinners in the world. Second, we are to remain in the world. Um, Paul makes that point rhetorically, right? In verse 10 of chapter 5, not of all meaning the sexual immoral of this world, or the greedy, or the swindlers, or idolaters. Since then, you would need to go out of the world. So Paul's assuming that we're interacting in the world, we're working in the world, we're buying and selling in the world, and in doing so, we will be dealing with all manner of sinners. And he has no word to say, stop doing that, boycott this or that. You remain in the world. Um, and the notion of going into sort of Christian ghettos where all we do is hang out with ourselves is, is, again, not something you'll find in Scripture. The notion of the monastic notion. Again, this is opposed to that. We're assumed to be in the world. Our Lord, in his great high priestly prayer in John 17, prayed, I do not ask you to take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil ones. See, the difficulty is knowing how to walk in the world with wisdom, to not be corrupted by the world or contaminated by the world, but to be salt and light in the world. So we are to remain in the world. Now let's get to our main and key point here, point C. We are not authorized 
to judge outsiders. We are not authorized to judge outsiders. Now, here's the point what I mean by saying authorized. We're capable of it. I mean, I can take Scripture and hold it up to an unbeliever. I can, I can look at the front page on the news site, and it's going to tell me what celebrities doing what with whom. And I could, I could make, if someone were to say, Jeremy, what do I make of this? Is that right or wrong? I could, I could render a judgment. Nowhere am I called to. It's not under my purview. It's not my mission. We, we will judge the world. We just read that in chapter 6. That's not now. That's later. And Paul says emphatically, verse 12 of chapter 5, for what have I to do with judging outsiders? And the assumed answer is nothing. Not now. A few verses later, he makes it clear, we will have a lot to do with that when the Lord returns. And he judges the nations. We'll be there with him. We are not authorized to judge. And here's, here's what I mean by authorized. I want to give this example from Luke. Jesus is headed to Jerusalem. He's on mission. Remember, he sets his face in chapter 9. He's focused. And on his way to Jerusalem, someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brothers to divide the inheritance with me. And Jesus, who will judge the living and the dead, Jesus, who will separate the sheep from the goats, Jesus, who is the King of kings and Lord of lords, said, Man, who made me a judge or arbiter over you? What's the point? That's not what he was sent to do. That's not part of his mission. That's not part of his commission. He will indeed judge all sin. But for his earthly ministry, even though he had the prerogative and the right, even though Jesus could have rendered righteous and perfect and pure judgment, he was not authorized to. He wasn't tasked with that. And that's the issue for us. So often, I think, because we can see, we can make sense. That's not right. We, we don't ask the next question, which is even though we can judge, should we? Should we announce and pronounce that judgment? And is there any sort of reason or rationale to do so? It's difficult because with social media, so often you're asked, I'm asked, what do you think of this? And the more black and white, the more outrageous, the more emphatic, the better, Right? You don't get clicks with, here's an interesting and thought-provoking article that you should consider. What you get clicks from is, you won't believe what happened next, right? And wait till you hear. And we would do well to look at the Lord of glory and more often think, who made me a judge in this? Why ought I? What good is there in me rendering a verdict or a judgment here? Now, there are some clear exceptions. There are some clear exceptions to this. This is not a, a blanket forbidding. Most obvious is as parents, my unbelieving children, I'm, I'm rendering judgments, right? God's given me an authority and a position. You may, in your workplace, manage people, and you're going to have to make divisions and distinctions and judgments. And there's a very real sense in your evangelism. How can you... Tell people to turn to Christ to be saved without telling them being saved from their sin, and that involves an announcement of judgment? Absolutely it does. So there are legitimate avenues of speaking and rendering judgment, but I just want to challenge you that unless you've thought through, is this appropriate, is this fitting, that you maybe follow the example of our Lord and say, why, why, why is there any reason? Why is there any purpose? Who, who made me a judge over this person to think through those things? So there are some clear exceptions. I mean, we get one in Luke 3, 
When the uh, centurions came to John the Baptist, they said, what should we do? Do not extort money from anyone by threats and don't accuse falsely. So the Roman centurions had, had part of their job involved some level of judgment, prosecution, making charges. And they okay, do it righteously, do it rightly. And that might be part of your responsibilities. But in general, the default should be, no, I'm not pronouncing and announcing judgment on unbelievers. Another reason for that is because in doing so, we supplant God's judgment. Paul's argument is this. God's got that one taken care of. God will judge them. So why do you or I need to add ours? Now, again, if the reason is because truly we're calling on people to repentance, we're warning them to flee the wrath to come, God bless you. If your unbelieving neighbor is truly asking you, what do you think about this? Speak the words of life to them. Season them with salt. But all too often, we just are frustrated with the way our culture is going. We're discouraged with the turn of our country. We're, we're discouraged with the way the moral trends are moving. We want to make it clear we're unhappy, and we announce judgment not as emissaries of God, but as dissatisfied customers. And, and that's what we're not to do. What do we have to do with judging the world? You don't need to, God's got the judgment covered, right? For what I have to do with judging outsiders, verse 12, is it not those inside the church whom you're to judge? God judges those outside. He's got that covered. And we're going to have a role in that judgment. But it's not now. It's later. We radically ruin our testimony when we're supposed to be reaching out to the world with the love of Christ and we, when we look like self-righteous, angry, embittered people, mad because our culture is being stolen from us. It doesn't honor God. It doesn't obey Scripture. And it doesn't follow the pattern of our Lord. God will judge. We don't need to replace his judgment. You're not going to improve upon it. And listen to the Apostle Paul. So Jesus won't judge between this two brothers and their inheritance. Paul is being beaten by the high priest, contrary to the law. He calls him, you whitewashed tomb, the Lord will strike you. They say to him, are you going to speak that way to the high priest? Listen to Paul. Acts 23, 5. Paul said, I did not know, brothers, that this was the high priest. For it is written, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. And Facebook says, no, no, please do. Do exactly that. Tell us what you think of the rulers of your people. Follow the example of Paul. Follow the example of Jesus. And just ask yourself, is there any good reason why I'm rendering this judgment? Yes, you can. You've got scripture. Yes, you're capable of saying, that's wicked. That's righteous. Is there any biblical reason why you ought to, why I ought to? Let us do what Jesus would do. Do what Paul does. And, and think through those things. And the flip side, of course, then, is we are commanded to judge within the church. We are commanded to judge within the church. And he gives us two reasons for that here. First, in verses 3 through 5, to save the sinner. To save the sinner. We'll move quickly here because this is primarily about how to deal with the world. But for though absent in the body, I'm present in spirit. I've already pronounced judgment on the one who has done such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of our Lord Jesus... And my spirit is present with the power of the Lord Jesus. You are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. So even there, the judgment we're doing in the church has a redemptive purpose. We're, we're exercising judgment 
that sinners might be saved because unrepentant habitual sin and a professing believer is a life or death issue. We also deal with sin in the body to stop the spread of sin. To stop the spread of sin. Your boasting is not good, verse 6. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old lump. Um, cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. So we absolutely are commissioned and authorized here in Matthew 18 to deal with sin in the body, to take care of ourselves. And, and so that's the challenge, that you or I would be open to, to the rebuke of others, the correction of others, that we would, when the Lord shows us that speak encouragement, speak words of correction to others, that we would be dealing with our own sin. As First Peter says, and we'll see in a moment, that judgment will begin with the house of the Lord and leave by default the world to the judgment of God. Yes, I know there are reasons and times and places to speak. Think through that and make sure you've got one of them. So that's the first half of this. Do not judge the world. Here's your passage. Paul's clear on this. And so often we can get this backwards. But now I want you to turn with what time we have left to First Peter. Turn to actually to chapter 2. We're really going to pick it up in chapter 3. But go to chapter 2. And I've put into bold here the passages I want you to follow along with me with. We're just going to move through um, 1 Peter, starting in 2, then 3, and then 4. Peter writes his epistle to a church that's a little confused. It's the beginning of persecution. And in that respect, I think that's a good fit for us. Many of us are just beginning to catch a whiff of the fact that once the world understands what we believe, they may well hate us. They may well call us words... That, that end with phobic, that we may lose jobs, that we may be ridiculed. And that's a new thing for us because for a long time in this country, we've, we've held the sort of moral majority. In, in the history of the church, that is the unusual thing. And what we're beginning to enter into is much more the norm. So praise God for times when biblical morality was not mocked by the culture, at least given some tip of the hat to from the culture. But the scriptures are written to a church that's assumed to be the remnant, that's assumed to be the minority. And so First Peter is written precisely to those sorts of people. In fact, actually, turn back to chapter 1. You'll see that, that this is really the theme of this letter. And I'd encourage you to read and reread First Peter. There's so much here for us living in these days. Just look at the opening greeting, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed to the last time. So he starts out with the certainty, the incorruptibility of our salvation. In this you rejoice, though, now for a little while, if necessary. You've been grieved by various trials. So the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and honor and glory, the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ. So he's writing to a church that has a certain and sure salvation and inheritance, but they're beginning to have their faith tested. And so much of this letter is written about how they interact with the unbelieving world. So now if you turn to chapter 2, 
the sort of theme for this section um, is, is given in verses 11 and 12, I believe. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles, as strangers living in a strange land, to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. So that if the first half of my message was don't judge, do not judge the world, the second is don't, do not fear the world. Our salvation is secure. Our God is sovereign. They cannot harm us. We do not need to be afraid of them. And so what we need to do is get about the business of faithfully following our Lord's instructions. So let's begin in chapter 3. Your first point here is do not curse but bless those who revile you. After uh, chapter 2, 11 and 12, he goes into specific cases. And the primary instructions: keep your head down, keep your mouth shut, honor those who God has put in above you, serve them well, bear a good conscience, be prepared to suffer wrongdoing. And after going through slaves, the example of Christ, wives and unbelieving husbands, we get to uh, chapter 3, verse 8. Finally, all of you. Have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you are called, that you may obtain a blessing. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil, his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for good? So the first response is this. We, we ought not to be terribly surprised when we're spoken ill of. And when they call us names, and when they say you're homophobic, transphobic, against women's rights, don't curse them, don't get mad, don't go post on Facebook, bless them. Bless them, that, that's the instructions. Bless them. Point B, do not fear them, but be prepared to speak. Look at verse 14, but even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, or be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ, the Lord is holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason, for the hope that is in you. Now there's the posture. You're not afraid. You're prepared to be mistreated. You're prepared to be reviled, even as you're speaking blessings in return. Because you know that you're blessed. We know someone else who was cursed and reviled and endured it and uttered no threats. Do we not? And so to that degree, Peter's going to say, we share in his sufferings. And we're ready to speak. It's not that we never speak, but we're speaking when they're actually asking us this. I mean, that, that's why we need wisdom to know when someone asks you a question, what you think about this cultural topic. Are they really asking? Do they really want to know what you, a Christ follower, thinks? Or are they baiting you into a trap? And be wise as serpents and harmless as doves. Here... We're speaking, and we're prepared to speak when people are genuinely asking us for the hope within us. So here are the blanks. Do not fear them, but be prepared to speak when asked for the hope within you. 
Now that assumes we're living like we have a hope and not like we're baptized with lemonade. We're living like we have a hope. We're not being discouraged. We're not fearful. We're not grumbling about how the former days are better than the present days. And they're asking us, why do you have a hope? Our, our world is, is very concerned about the spread of, of the coronavirus. We should have a different hope. So that perhaps your neighbor, your coworker, I say, hey, you're not as shaken up about this as others are. What's this hope that's in you? One possible example. When asked for the hope within you. And notice also that he qualifies how we're to speak. So we are to speak. There are absolutely situations to speak. And we're going to be speaking the words of life. And we may have to speak hard truth. But he says, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. Not with sarcasm, vitriol, anger, mockery. The blanks here with gentleness and respect. So yeah, absolutely. There may well be times when you're dealing with unbelieving neighbors and say, what do you think about abortion? And, and you sense they actually want to know. They're asking you as a Christian, tell them. And give them an answer with gentleness and respect. This is similar to what Paul says to Timothy in 2 Timothy 2, 24-25. The Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth. He doesn't end it there, though, does he? Answering them with gentleness and respect, but he goes on to say, having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, see, he assumes even though they're answering with respect, even though they're waiting for others to take the initiative, they're still going to be slandered, he assumes. They're keeping a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. Point three here. Keep a good conscience and do good works. Now that's a powerful testimony. It's the opposite of the Pharisees. We're not quick to judge. We're not pointing our fingers. We're not being bitter and sarcastic. People are asking us, and we're speaking with gentleness and with respect. We're speaking with lives bearing good fruit. And even though they hate what we think, and they disagree with what we believe, they can't deny the goodness of our lives. I'll give you one example of this. I'm, I, this is one of my favorite stories. Um, I, one of our students who graduated from a college nearby reported to me a, a conversation she overheard in the coffee shop with one of the professors there talking to a, um, I believe it was a transgender student who's going to go on to be a seminary student pastoring now, I believe. And at that time, a number of students from that college were coming to our church, are still at our church. And what she overheard was the professor talking to the, the student about our church and how it was so sinister and so awful that we believe such terrible things and yet we were so nice. No, that's exactly the way it should be. My heart soared when I heard that because it meant you guys were doing it right. What they were saying is we hate what they believe. And they were saying it was sinister because we were tricking and duping these students who were coming here. Like, well, they're really nice. 
What they wanted was our works to be as vile as they believed our theology was. That's exactly what Peter says should be happening here. We should expect the world in its unregenerate state, without God granting repentance, to hate what we believe. It should offend them. This is the most offensive book in the world. It condemns everyone to hell. Right? What we believe is offensive. Your false religion is of no value. In fact, it's, it's heaping up wrath for you. Your best deeds are filthy garments. You need a savior, and you cannot save yourself. This is offensive truth. And when the world understands what we believe, we should expect them to be offended. It shouldn't surprise us. We shouldn't get mad about it. But what should happen is they should have a really hard time actually slandering us because our lives are bearing righteous fruit to keep a good conscience and good works. So look at, look at that whole package one more time. Verse 14 through verse 17. Even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason, for the hope that is within you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. God is not asking you or I to do anything different than what our Lord Jesus Christ has already done. Gladly, trusting in our Father, bear up underneath mistreatment, even as we are bearing good fruit, loving our neighbor, even as they speak ill of us. That should not surprise us. So do not fear, but be prepared to speak. Now turn to chapter 4 of 1 Peter. Do not join them in their sin. So up to this point, it's primarily been, look, let's not be jerks. Let's not be self-righteous, judgmental jerks. Let's be respectful. Let's... Speak the truth in love with good fruit. But now there's another danger here is this. We can become fearful of the pressure, and there's a lot of pressure. A lot of pressure to conform. At the very least, a lot of pressure to keep your mouth shut. And we cannot join in with the world. This is the, this is the tightrope we have to walk. What, what tends to be easier for us is either just to be brash, brazen, aggressive, and angry, or just sort of bend and go with the flow. And the, the difficulty for us is to walk with integrity, and gentleness and faith. Look at chapter 4, verse 1. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking, for whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but with the will of God, for the will of God. For the time is past, that is past, suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do. You've had enough of that. Living in the sensuality, Passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you. So, so this, this actually gives a, 
a cordon off to what I said earlier. We're still to associate with the world, but we're not joining them in their sin. We're not associating with them at the drinking party, at the orgy, at the idolatry. We are separating from them in their sin. We're not taking part of that, and we're maligned for it. But they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. So do not join them in their sin. And what's particularly difficult about the issues we've been talking about in the sermon series is that not only has there been a radical culture morality shift, um, but the culture everywhere wants everyone, and Christians in particular, to not only tolerate and accept their sin, but to celebrate it and affirm it. It's become a new shibboleth. It's become a new test of fellowship. What do you think? You hold to a woman's right to choose, don't you? What do you think about this? Um, We're actually in our country moving to a place where there's becoming coerced speech, which is strange and difficult. And so we should expect and not be surprised to have this happen. And we cannot lie against the truth. Even as I've said earlier, we're not looking for opportunities to pick fights. We're not looking to hurl our, oh yeah, well that's terrible bombs across over the wall. When they come and talk to us, when they invite us to their celebrations, to their part, whatever it is, we, we don't participate. That's the other side. Through our participation, in a few months, when we get to Ephesians 5, um, we will read in verses 11 through 12, take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. And so again, this is the tightrope for us, is not constantly speaking against and, and berating and mocking and, and scolding the world, and yet not growing so complacent with their sin that we sort of accept it in and we tolerate it too, and we laugh at the same things they laugh at, and we celebrate the same things they celebrate. It, it is difficult to walk with integrity in this world where we're not being Pharisees and we're not being disloyal to the truth. It is difficult. And we can join them in participating, but we can also join them, we learn in, in Romans chapter 1, it's the wrong verse there, it should be verse 32, through simply approval. In, in Romans 1, after laying out the charge against mankind, that mankind willfully suppresses the truth of the knowledge of God as creator, and they refuse to thank him or honor him. He goes on to give a, a laundry list of sins, and at the end of this, this grab-all list of sins, he writes this, For though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. And the Bible, in many places, says, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil. And so we're in a difficult spot. Because we're not to judge, we're not to pick fights. And yet, it's more and more we're being asked, do we agree with the new morality? And when we dare not lie to the truth, deny the truth for fear of man, and we need wisdom. And, and, and I know of particular cases that need particular wisdom. This will not be easy. 
And we need to trust God through this. But we, we cannot join them in their sin. We cannot participate in it. We cannot approve of it. And again, this is why First Peter is so helpful. He's writing to people trying to be salt and light in the world. And, and he deals with these issues. So let's, let's look at one more. Point D, do not be surprised or ashamed. Beloved, verse 12, do not be surprised at the fiery trial that is coming upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you're insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will, the outcome, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. So don't be surprised. Praise God that we've had this strange period of history where the culture, at least in lip service, embraced Christian morality. Praise God for that. That's a blessing. And it seems to be coming to an end. And so now I think we're entering more the norm, what the Bible expects to be the norm, that we are radically out of step with the culture and its values. Don't, don't, be, don't be surprised. Don't grumble and complain. And don't be ashamed. Trust God. Point E here. Entrust yourself to your faithful creator. Entrust yourself to your faithful creator. Verse 19, therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. God, God is sovereign in control. We, if you've read the back of the book, you know we win. And we will judge the world. But I want you to turn, turn back to chapter 2. In, in, in using that language, Peter is drawing us back to something he said earlier. That I want you to see. This shows up in the context of slaves whose masters beat them for no reason. And, and Peter has some hard and challenging counsel to them. But he encourages them by pointing them to the example of Christ. So I'm going to pick this up in verse um, 20. For what credit is it if, when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But... If when you do good and suffer for it, you endure. This is a gracious thing in the sight of God. To this you've been called. What's the this? Suffering for doing good. For to this you've been called because Christ also suffered for you. Leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. Just remind yourself that. You get to follow in the steps of Jesus. To the degree that you are maligned to the degree that you are mistreated for holding to the truth, you're following the steps of Jesus. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, 
He did not go to social media. No, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. Don't tread on me. Didn't, didn't say that. But continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. So Peter's telling us, do the same thing. Jesus endured the cross by trusting in the wisdom and the plan of his father. And Peter says, hey, we've been called to similar ministry, to similar experiences, and we can trust our creator as well because we're his creatures. And so he can do with us as he pleases. He can put this pot here and this pot there. And he means good for us, and he is good, and he's wise. And that may mean that we have to go through this world trusting him. But that that is what we're called to do. We're called not to judge the world, but also not to fear the world. As we serve a king who has triumphed over the world. And so we need to pray, and I'll close now and pray that God would give us the wisdom to do that. The integrity, the courage, the conviction. Lord God, help us to be salt and light in this world. Help us to know when to speak when to give an answer and when not to. Lord, help us um, to judge ourselves, to deal with sin in our body, but to give the judgment of the world to you and for another time. Give us the wisdom to know when we ought to speak, when to be silent. Give us the, the joy and the faith to suffer well, knowing that our reward is great in heaven. Give us the um, perseverance to walk in the steps of our Savior, that we too would bless when we are reviled, that we too would utter no threats, that we too would entrust ourselves to your faithfulness, where you are good, and we, we are reminded of your goodness to us. You sent your Son to die for us. Surely we can trust you with our lives. And so, Lord God, I pray that you would help us, give us the wisdom, give us the strength, give us the conviction and the faith to be in the world but not of it, to speak the truth in love, to not to compromise truth, but not to, to, to browbeat and judge with truth. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. The Lord bless you. The Lord keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and give you peace. You are dismissed.